You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 264 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. The world is in lockdown. The dead are lining the streets. The end is near the apocalypse. No, not really. But if your view of the world comes through mainstream media or social media, you are sure to feel like that, perhaps. Hopefully, this episode will cure you of this panic. Today is National Earth Day. It is also the birthday of my second daughter. The first daughter died. Check out episode 103. If you want to go down memory lane, that is... Anyway, today is National Earth Day and I want to celebrate our planet and my daughter's birthday uh, with uh, some truth, laying down some truth, my truth, because that's the only truth I can provide. In fact, this is not an episode I planned to make at all. I was going to do only one episode a month in 2020, you know, take it easy a bit. But uh, some things cannot be left unsaid, considering what's been going on. So here is a sort of special report, special episode, if you will. And for those listening in the future, you might not remember what happened in the early months of 2020. But, uh, well, what happened was that the whole world lost their freaking minds and went into lockdown due to something called COVID-19, a.k.a. the coronavirus. Now, I've always been a contrarian, and I've never felt more alone and more like a contrarian than I do now. You see, I call bullshit on the whole thing. I've called bullshit on this since it began. I have a special skill, let's say a certain set of skills, that makes it easy for me to (laughs) smell bullshit when I smell it. Disclaimer. There are people who have died. There are those that do suffer. I'm not saying this does not exist. There are nurses and doctors fighting to save people's lives. I am not saying this does not happen. There are people who get sick and almost die. I'm not saying this does not happen. This is not the bullshit. What I am saying is this. There is no pandemic. The panic has been created to force an agenda of mandatory vaccination and or a removal of human rights in terms of gatherings, freedom of movement and freedom of thought. What is going on right now on a governmental and law creating level is way more dangerous than any disease. And I'm also saying that the disease is not as dangerous as they like to make it out to be. But I'm not saying that it's not dangerous to some people, but it's not dangerous to the human race. 
where I live, if you have had the virus but die for any reason within 30 days, it becomes documented as if you died from the virus. Also, normally, when people die of old age, we do not test for any virus. But if we did, there would be a large part of old age deaths that would have had the flu. But it's not registered as a flu death. But if if it was registered as a flu death, this would mean that the common flu is way, way, way more deadly than what is considered. Most people that die are already ill and very old, and many of them would have died anyway within 30 days of receiving the virus. And these are just a few points that indicate we have created an enormous panic for no reason. And maybe there is no virus, maybe these virus tests are inaccurate, maybe things are not at all what they seem. Later on in this episode I'll be playing a talk by Dr. Andrew Kaufman, and he's going to blow your mind. Please hold out for that. Now, I'm not saying people are not having an illness. When I'm saying there's no coronavirus, I'm not saying there isn't a disease. Uh, It's not black and white. I'm saying, of course, lots of people became ill of something. And some of those people died. But there's no pandemic. There's no pandemic. Now, there are two things that make people go crazy. Uh, If you argue being a vegan or if you argue anti-vaccine. You are either for it or you are against it. There's no middle ground, it seems. Well, in terms of this virus, the agenda is mandatory vaccination. They tried it with the swine flu and others in the past. I recall being one of the few who did not vaccinate Uh, when the swine flu vaccine came out where I live and I got a lot of harassment from people for not being a good citizen. And this is how a fascist state controls the population, by having people control each other. It's disgusting. Almost everyone I know that got the swine flu vaccine got sick. I didn't, because I didn't take it. Most people believe in vaccines unconditionally, in the same way they believe their government or the system they live in. They believe it without question. Some things can be believed, some things are true, but should you believe them without questioning it first? You know, blind faith, is that good? I know Jesus said to Doubting Thomas that blessed are those that have not seen and still believe. But this is not about spiritual matters. This is about your individual human rights. I want to read an excerpt from an article called The Evils of Big Pharma by Joachim Hagofian. I'll post a link to it in the program notes. Every year, a handful of the biggest pharmaceutical corporations are a well-represented fixture amongst the most powerful companies of the world. Big Pharma's top 11 corporations generated net profits in just one decade, from 2003 to 2012, of nearly three quarters of a trillion dollars. And that's just net profit alone. Just as the oligarchs buy, own and control national governments to do their sleazy bidding, Big Pharma, as an extension of those same oligarchs, does too. Perhaps what makes Big Pharma unique in the US is that the industry outspends all others in laying down cold hard cash into its lobbying efforts. Another word for bribing governments that includes not only US Congress but its US federal regulator. 
the bought and sold Food and Drug Administration. Big Pharma poured 2.7 billion into its lobbying interests from 1998 to 2013. Plenty of empirical evidence exists that confirm concerted diabolical efforts have been made to ruin the lives of pioneering heroes who have come up with possible cures for cancer, AIDS and other terminal illnesses. Obviously, their work poses a serious threat to medical status quo. Hence, their treatments have all been effectively suppressed by conventional medicine. Bottom line, if humans are healthy, the healthcare industry does not survive. Thus, it is in its own inherently self-serving interest to promote illness in the name of wellness. Then, look at what we are now learning about big pharma vaccines and the wanton reckless endangerment of children and pregnant mothers with toxic levels of mercury causing increased rates of autism, brain damage and even death. The criminal cover-up by big government and big pharma is egregious. Flu vaccines have recently been exposed that are totally ineffective along with the horrific damage being done to humans worldwide. Instead of preventing and decreasing illness, vaccines too often have had the opposite effect, exponentially increasing illness, causing irreversible damage and even death to thousands of unsuspecting victims, mostly living in third world nations. I'm going to post a link to another article in the program notes written by a bunch of doctors and scientists called 12 experts questioning the coronavirus panic. Have a look at it and form your own opinion. And also have a look at my link to the article called The Evils of Big Pharma. This is NBA News. Dr. Andy Bukacek is a board-certified internal medicine physician. She's been practicing medicine for over 30 years, most of those years in Montana. And in 2019 won the ACP Laureate Award for commitment to excellence in medical care as well as service to their community and the ACP. Please welcome to the podium Dr. Annie Bukacek. Thank you, and thank you for the introduction. At a time where telling the truth is considered a threat to national security, we're very blessed to have a pastor who tells us the truth. We are blessed beyond measure. So I'm going to read this so that I make sure I don't ex- give excessive commentary. So I'm going to talk about death certificates today. The decision for unprecedented government mandated lockdowns has been based on the alleged death rate of COVID-19. Is this death rate based on truth? Few people know how much individual power and leeway is given to the physician, coroner, or medical examiner signing the death certificate. How do I know this? I've been filling out death certificates for over 30 years. More often than we want to admit, we don't know with certainty the cause of death when we fill out death certificates. That is just life. We are doctors, not God. Autopsies are rarely performed, and even when an autopsy is done, the actual cause of death is not always clear. Physicians make their best guesstimate and fill out the form, then that listed cause of death, whatever we list, is entered into a vital records data bank to use for statistical analysis, which then gives out inaccurate numbers, as you can imagine. 
those inaccurate numbers then become accepted as factual information, even though much of it is false. So, even before, before we heard of COVID-19, death certificates were based on assumptions and educated guesses that go unquestioned. When it comes to COVID-19, there is the additional data skewer that is, get this, there is no universal definition of COVID-19 death. The Center for Disease Control, updated from yesterday, April 4th, still states that mortality, quote unquote, data, includes both confirmed and presumptive positive cases of COVID-19. That's from their website. Translation, the CDC counts both true COVID-19 cases and speculative guesses of COVID-19 the same. They call it death by COVID-19. They automatically overestimate the real death numbers by their own admission. Prior to COVID-19, people were more likely to get an accurate cause of death written on their death certificate if they died in the hospital. Why more accurate when a patient dies in the hospital? Because hospital staff has physical exam findings, labs, radiologic studies, etc., to make a good educated guess. It is estimated that 60% of people die in the hospital. But even those in hospital deaths, the cause of death is not always clear, especially in someone with multiple health conditions, each of which could cause the death. To drive this home, we need to understand how the CDC and National Vital Statistics System are instructing physicians to fill out death certificates related to COVID-19. Brace yourselves and please pay attention and let what I'm about to tell you sink in. The assumption of COVID-19 death can be made even without testing. Based on assumption alone, the death can be reported to the public as an another COVID-19 casualty. The March 24th, 2020 National Vital Statistics System memo states, and I quote, the rules for coding and selection of the underlying cause of death are expected to result in COVID-19 being the underlying cause more often than not, end of quote. Here's a, a quote even more laden with meaning. Stephen Schwartz, National Director of the Division of Vital Statistics, says in answer to the question as stated in the organization's COVID-19 alert, quote, should COVID-19 be reported on the death certificate only with a confirmed test? Check out his answer, and I quote from this memo of which I have a copy, Quote, COVID-19 should be reported on the death certificate for all decedents where the disease caused or is assumed to have caused or contributed to death. Fact, quote, COVID-19 caused death, end of quote, and quote, assumed death by COVID-19, end of quote, are not the same thing. And for those who died from something else and had an incidental finding of COVID-19 positivity, Dying with COVID-19 is not the same as dying from COVID-19. But based on how death certificates are being filled out, you can be certain the number is substantially lower than what we are being told. <sighs> Look, let's, uh, let's keep it real. People 
get really upset when I uh, talk about this uh, coronavirus, calling it a scam. It really triggers people. And, uh, you know, I'm a contrarian by default. And I don't think I've ever taken a position that's been so contrarian as being against this virus in this way. Funny thing is that I've also noticed that some of the most racist right-wing retards uh, also call it a scam. And um, uh, I have nothing to do with these people. You know, I, I think you should recycle your garbage. And a pedophile might think he should recycle his garbage. It doesn't make me support pedophilia. You know what I mean? So, uh, same with fake news. I, I called the news fake news way before Donald Trump did. But now because Donald Trump uses the term fake news, as soon as I say fake news, people assume I, uh, I'm wearing a MAGA hat or something. You know, I mean, there is some sort of disease. Some people can catch it. Some people die. But what I'm opposed to is this panic, fear-infected mania that's going on. And uh, really what it all comes down to is one thing. There is, you know, forget everything you will hear in this episode. Forget everything you have heard. There's only really one issue I have with the coronavirus uh, hysteria. It's only one issue. And that is that, you know, in, uh, in the Congo, children are enslaved and they work to death and they are murdered, raped, so they can uh, mine this mineral called coltan. And coltan, uh, you need coltan to um, power, I don't don't ask me how it works, but you need it to power like Playstations, iPhones, smartphones, laptops, all this stuff. And 90% of the world's coltan is in Congo. And uh, for the past 20 years, more people have been murdered in the Congo than in the Auschwitz concentration camps. Or camp. Nobody gives a fuck. Nobody. Honestly, have you ever heard anyone talk about this in the mainstream media? Ever. Have you ever heard anybody talk about this uh, during your coffee break at work? No. On top of that, there's children starving uh, to death all over the world. There's uh, diseases that in the West we have no issue with, like tuberculosis, malaria, even HIV. Uh, if you get these and you live in the West, y- y- you know, you you'll be fine. But there's uh, there are many places in the world where it's a death sentence, and uh, there's no outrage. You know, in Yemen now, for the past year, atrocities have been going on. Atrocities have been going on in Yemen. 
Where's the outrage? With all these children murdered and raped, all these guerrilla wars and wars happening for oil and other minerals, with all these all this starvation that's going on around the world, I haven't seen any outrage, not one fucking outrage anywhere. The only outrage that I've noticed in the past year concerns Louis C.K. jerking off in front of women. You know, that, that's the outrage people focused on. And now there's an outrage against this virus. You know, everybody's like, we got to work together. All the countries need to work together to stop this virus. Imagine if we had that kind of commitment and unity concerning hunger, homelessness, rape and murder, and the theft of other people's stuff. Like... We're how the West is stealing all the coltan from the mines in Congo. Because it's criminals who enslave these children and then they get the coltan and then they sell it to somebody else who sells it to Western companies and then you and me can buy these products and we don't need to think about the blood that was spilled uh, in making them. So what? And this is what really annoys me with the coronavirus. So... The only reason, the only reason people are outraged, panicked and trying to work together to stop this virus from spreading is selfishness. People are being selfish because it threatens their own lives or somebody they know. That's the only fucking reason they care. They don't care because imagine if this virus only affected Africa, let's say. Do you think... There would have been this much outrage in the West? No. Remember Ebola? I mean, there was talk about Ebola in the West, but as soon as it became clear that most of it was in Africa, nobody gave a fuck about Ebola. Nobody. I hope this fucking virus takes down as many spoiled, privileged, fucking selfish retards in the West as possible. You know, this, you know... We fucking deserve it. We deserve it because slavery is not gone. The only reason we can enjoy such a luxurious way of life in the West, and even if you are unemployed, even if you are living paycheck to paycheck, it's still a luxurious life compared to many other people in the world. And the reason we can live like this is because we allow that kind of enslavement and colonialism to happen in other parts of the world. So fuck us is what I'm saying. Fuck us. If you are not concerned about all these other things, if you are not working actively to try and make the world a better place for other people, for things that won't affect you personally, then you're just an egotistical, selfish bastard if the only thing you care about is a virus and it and and if it can affect you this is this is why i'm fucking annoyed with this uh, so-called pandemic <sighs> oh, it felt nice to get this 
out of my system. If you agree or if you don't agree, that's up to you. But that's my position on this thing. Now I'm going to play a little mix I've made composed of a video by a YouTuber called the Dollar Vigilante, Anarchist Larkin Rose, parts of David Icke's appearance at London Real from an episode that actually got taken down, as well as samples from a very interesting talk by Dr. Andrew Kaufman. I'm also mixing some other stuff in there as well. Links to all the sources will be found in the program notes. And after my little mix, you are going to hear the full talk by Dr. Andrew Kaufman, and I sincerely hope you listen to the whole thing. Now, it might sound a bit technical, but I hope you will have the patience to stick it out to the end. I found it very interesting. During the talk, Dr. Kaufman also shows some slides, but you don't really need to see these to be able to follow along, in my opinion. Dr. Kaufman also talks a bit about uh, gold standard tests and that uh, there is no... Uh, gold standard test for COVID-19. Basically, he's talking about when they're testing you for having uh, the virus in you. Uh, But there's no gold standard test. And it means that a gold standard test has a sensitivity of 100% with respect to the presence of the disease. It identifies all individuals with a well-defined disease process. It does not have any false negative results. A gold standard test has a specificity of 100%. It does not falsely identify someone with a condition that does not have a condition. It does not have any false positive results. In fact, today I read an article in mainstream media that actually was talking about there are many people who um, are falsely uh, tested, that are tested and the virus does not show up and then they are or or that they are tested and the virus shows up but they are not they don't actually have it and that's because covid-19 does not have a gold standard test so i wanted to put that in there as well but uh, that that's going to be about an hour from now <laughs> so uh, keep that in mind anyway here's the little mix i hope you will enjoy it uh, please uh, listen to every important word, and then after this little mix, we go straight into Dr. Andy Kaufman's uh, talk about COVID-19. All right? Sit back, relax, and remember that... Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. 
I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm mad as hell! I'm not gonna take it anymore! I'm not gonna take it anymore! From the beginning, subheading fear as a tool. Now, keep in mind, this is written as a manual for someone trying to be a tyrant. So when it says you, it's talking to somebody trying to be a tyrant. Almost all oppression via propaganda is based upon scaring people and then presenting a false choice where the people can choose either to do what you want them to do or face some unknown, often purely fictional horror. This is not the method of the common thug, which can be summarized as do this or I will hurt you. A successful modern tyrant never presents himself as the thing to be afraid of, as doing so would obviously create resentment and hatred in the peasantry, and that leads to resistance. Every thing to be feared, or TTBF, with which you terrorize your peasants must be presented as some separate outside evil that only you can save them from. You must present the simple choice between obedience to you and the threat of some unpleasant happening which does not appear to be of your doing and which you pretend to lament the existence of. In short, you must deceive and scare the citizens into voluntarily giving up their freedom. Quote, the people never give up their liberties but under some delusion. End quote, Edmund Burke. A simple example would be making up a plague of some sort assuring people that millions are doomed to die, and then claiming that giving you a lot of money and control is the only hope of averting disaster. Or perhaps, instead of making up a disease, you can pick a real disease, grossly exaggerate the risk it poses to the peasants, whip them into a frenzy, and then present yourself as their only hope for salvation, which, of course, will require you to be given much wealth and power. Recent history gives many examples to build upon, such as AIDS, anthrax, mad cow disease, etc. Even the common flu can be used to spread alarm and panic in the peasantry. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? That's because they've been doing this for centuries now. A lot of people aren't aware of it. I'm going to tell you why. It's because you've been pretty much brainwashed by a criminal system now for a long time. And don't get all mad and go, I'm not brainwashed. First of all, that's the first thing a brainwashed person would say. But I'll explain it in really kind terms. Because it's not your fault. You were born. Your parents believed all this stuff, which their parents believed you began, you were forced to go to government schools, believe in the system, to actually think you're part of the system when the furthest, it's the furthest case from the truth. 
and you turn on the television programming and it is called programming for a reason. It is literally programming your mind. It is mind control. Even the word government is a, comes from a Latin word. Govern is gubernare, which means control, to control. Ment is mente, mind, mind control. So don't turn this off yet, go, oh, he's crazy, I'm not mind controlled. You probably are, almost everyone in the world today is. So on the television programming for your entire life, they have things called news. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, Donald Trump kind of made the word fake news pretty popular. A lot of people who know about what's going on, like myself, have been using that term for a long time because it literally is not real. It is actors and scripts written by essentially people like the CIA. This is all proven. And as Larkin Rose was saying, they know because they've been <laughs> had a lot of practice. A lot of the stuff going on in the US and many parts of the world today all was a continuation of what was happening in Germany, where they wrote the book Propaganda, where people like Goebbels and all that talked about how to control the population. In fact, everything on television programming is literally done to put you into a state of trance. Even the hurts that it's done with, these are all patented. You can look at everything, everything I'm saying you can look up. So what happens when you're an adult? When you're watching television, you're essentially staring at a blinking light, much like the mice in Christakis' experiment. If you've ever experienced a mind fog after watching television, you're not alone. The brain has four modes that it operates in, four brainwave patterns. Delta is when you're deep asleep, theta is when you're in light sleep, alpha is awake but relaxed, uh, it's the mode of uh, thinking that you are in when you're in the most heightened state of suggestibility, and then there's beta, the highest functioning mode, like when you're reading a book or you're having a very stimulating conversation. In 1969, Herbert Krugman did a study where he found that in less than 60 seconds, the human brain switched from beta brainwave patterns, those exhibited during logical thought, to alpha brainwave patterns. Alpha is not a bad brainwave pattern to be in, but when you're in that brainwave pattern a lot of the time, and if you look at the averages of how much people are watching television, this just leaves the mind unfocused and unable to concentrate. They've decided to say there's a super dangerous virus. I don't know about you, wherever I go, everyone seems fine. But they put on the mainstream media, hospitals are war zones. But when you look on the internet, hashtag film your hospital, there's been hundreds of people now, they all go to hospitals, they're empty. Hang on, here we are, OU emergency, mobile ER, look at this, tons of tents lining the walkway, but how many people do you all see, seriously? Zero, There's one. someone in, okay. Two. Two people in that first tent, but no one in the others. But they look like they were just workers waiting. Yeah. In fact, all I've seen of a lot of medical people lately is them all on the internet doing little dances for TikTok and stuff. So I don't know about you, but if I was in a war zone and everyone's dying, it's just blood and mayhem and mucus and people are turning blue and I'm trying to resuscitate them all day, 
I don't know about you, but after 12 hours of doing that, I doubt I'd look all fresh and go outside and work with my cohorts on a synchronized dance step for TikTok. But you might say, what about all the numbers? The numbers keep going up. Well, the same people who put out those numbers are the people who control everything. And it's been proven now countless times. They've even said it. For example, in Italy, a lot of people said, look at Italy, everyone's dying. The news says it's a war zone. There's photos of nurses crying at their desk. It's now been, came out, it was on Bloomberg. It was on numerous mainstream things because they can't hide it for very long. That between 88 and 99% of people they said died because of COVID in Italy, didn't. <laughs> it wasn't even close. It was like people in car accidents, people had heart attacks. They, they put them all down as COVID. And the reasoning was, well, if one person in the hospital had COVID, they assumed everyone had it and that's why they're dying. And it's the same thing going on over and over. Even mainstream Dr. Fossey or what's his name, Nigel Harris, I believe, from the Imperial London College. They were the two main people who convinced most of the world to lock down and go into martial law. Both of them have come out in the last few weeks and said, it looks like their computer models were wrong. It's not gonna be millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions dead. It's going to be about the same amount every year from things like the flu. They both said it in their papers. So then you might be asking, if that's the case and there really isn't something super dangerous that's gonna kill a lot of people, why do they continue with these lockdowns? Why do they continue saying no one can leave their house? Three billion people in the world, which is making the economy completely implode and will be worse, way worse than anything from the Great Depression already. And if this con continues for even weeks or months, you won't believe how bad there's going to be food shortages from supply chain breakdowns. Everything's going to go to basically zero. Your pensions are going to be gone. So you might be asking, why would they be doing this? Whether it's World War I, World War II, Vietnam, uh, the uh, Ebola, SARS, swine flu, uh, bird flu, AIDS. AIDS, they said, was going to kill a third of the world's population within three years, back in the 80s, by the way. Oprah Winfrey said that. Well, I have a feeling um, that they'll use the age-old tactic of, uh, you know, order out of chaos or problem-reaction-solution. It could be a health pandemic. It could be an economic crash. They need something to, to get Canadians into this fear state. This will be the new normal until a vaccine is developed. Good morning. Here's the news. Through this first wave, uh, we will need to remain vigilant and we will need to bring in different measures. Uh, normality, as it was before, uh, will not come back full on until we get a vaccine for this. And as you say, that uh, could be a very long way off. A few drops of vaccine injected under the skin of the arm 
will give them dependable and lasting immunity. It makes me think back to 1976, the first year I served in the Congress, we had a vote on the swine flu. Back then, uh, there was a panic, and they said it was going to sweep the nation, and they rapidly came up with some flu shots, and uh, the government was going to inoculate everybody and save the world from this disaster. I'm the healthiest 55-year-old you've ever seen. Hey, I play golf every weekend. Get a shot of protection, the swine flu shot. The flu came, and the flu went, and one person died, except for those individuals who died from getting the flu vaccine. And over 25 people died uh, just from getting the vaccine, and many got ill from it, until finally they had to suspend the whole program. This will be the new normal until a vaccine is developed. We had about 13,000 cases of tuberculosis. Now that's a serious disease. And also, the last time they recorded the number of deaths in this country was in, in 06, and there were 644 deaths from tuberculosis. Laura, some students here in Prince George's County Schools have missed up to a month and a half of school because they have not gotten their vaccinations for chicken pox and hepatitis B. Now the school system says it's time to get tough and take those parents to court. We need those students immunized. We need them in schools. We need them safe. This Saturday, more than 1,600 students and their parents have been ordered to appear in circuit court for the children to be immunized. Health workers will be on hand to give the shots immediately. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. But anyway, this is what they do. Over and over and over again. And they're doing it right now. And it's really up to people to wake up and spread this information. And if we can do that, we can change the world dramatically overnight because they need a lot of people to believe them in order for them to continue to do what they're doing. So the more that people just say, I don't believe it and don't listen to their rules and regulations. One of the things I've been pointing out as a problem reaction solution uh, that was coming to, to, to uh, transform human society, including, by the way, one of the things I said was coming in my earlier books was a pandemic um, because of all the boxes it ticks. But what I have been saying for the best part of 30 years is they are planning an enormous economic crash. And I've been saying it even more since 2008 because 2008 seemed to be a, be a nightmare, the point I'm making is what they want is something that would make 2008 look like, you know, a, 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 a Sunday school tea party. And so um, this coronavirus hysteria gives the, um, the excuse to do what they're doing and the outcome and the consequences of what they're doing 
is to dismantle the world economic system. Now, another thing I've been saying, this Hunger Games society, I've been saying this for a long time, is designed to have no small business, no even medium-sized business, globally, just gigantic corporations that control and produce everything. Amazon is a classic example of what I'm talking about. What this coronavirus um, hysteria is creating is a situation unfolding by the hour worldwide that is destroying small business, family business, even medium-sized business. Some even relatively big businesses too. It's destroying them. The, the, the big legacy of what is happening now will not be to do with health long term. It will be economic. I agree with it's you. Cat it's going to be catastrophic. Now, now, here's the point. What happens to those people whose businesses collapse? What happens to all those people who were working for those businesses? For bars, for, for, for hotels, for um, all these uh, businesses that have been targeted. Don't go there. Shut down. What happens to them? They fall into the bottom of the Hunger Games society. And, and, and what we're seeing now every day is this Hunger Games society coming closer and closer and closer because of what's being done in the name of protecting the people. I've got news for you. You go deep enough into this system, they don't give a shit about the people. We are being asked to believe now that this system cares about old people. We must protect the old people. We must destroy the world economy to protect the old people. Oh, these would be the old people, would they, that have paid in their entire life through taxation and other means, and at the end, in their final years, they get handed a pittance of a pension which gives them the choice between being warm or being hungry. And what does that do? When people are going without essential things, because the system doesn't care, and, and, and uh, they, they're having to buy shite food, because that's all they can afford. They, they can't have nutrients to um, boost their immune systems, because they can't afford them, and the mainstream, everything's not telling them they need them anyway. And at the same time, they're breathing in shit air, drinking toxic water and other drinks, being deluged with sugar, which has a phenomenally destructive impact on the immune system. All this is going on. We're living in a, uh, an electromagnetic, technologically generated soup of um, radiation toxicity. And this system has allowed that to happen, has allowed corporations to do that. Uh, and now, having done all that, that's devastated the lives and the immune systems of old people. We 
are being asked to believe that the system cares about the health of the elderly. It doesn't give a shit. And I'm not talking about the nurses. I'm not talking about the doctors. I'm talking about that at the core which is driving this. And, and the, the, the idea that all these things are being done to protect the elderly, they don't give a shit about the elderly. The elderly are an excuse to impose the very society that I'm talking about. Now, if you look at when these things happen and, and great uh, Orwellian, draconian things are put in place, oh, we've got to do this because of the problem. Well, the problem eventually passes. This virus will eventually flatten out. But what you see every time, 9-11's a classic, they'll roll back some of it, but not nearly roll back to where it was before. The whole thing's moved on closer to the Hunger Games Society. So when they found this genetic material from the lung fluid, they then uh, determined the sequence of it, which is basically the code of the genetic material. Um, so they determined uh, all of the base pairs and the order of that sequence. And then they rushed to rapidly develop a diagnostic test, which is a, a qualitative PCR. And I'll discuss that a little bit more in a moment. So in other words, before they really proved anything, they already developed a test. So with this COVID-19 test, there has not been any gold standard test that this has been compared to because the uh, supposed COVID-19 virus has never been purified um, and visualized. There are really not pandemic levels of people getting sick and dying from whatever's going on. The numbers are far less than a typical flu season. However, there clearly are some people who are getting sick. What I believe is causing this illness is that there is some kind of insult that occurs that causes the damage and then there is a reaction to it, which is the production of exosomes. And when we are testing for this supposed virus, we are actually testing for these exosomes, which confirms that there's some kind of unhealthy process going on in the body. Now, interestingly, psychological stress, including fear, which many, many people around the world are experiencing in a very intense way right now, also causes release of exosomes. So you see how this may uh, cause false positive tests. You, if you looked hard enough, you would find exosomes in every, every single human being. If you look at the number of cases and the number of mortality uh, of fatalities, you'd see that it, uh, it doesn't even really rise to the level of the flu. So if they took the, no, the real number of flu cases for this year and decided to designate a certain portion of those uh, people to test positive and say that when they're having the flu, it's actually this other really scary virus um, that uh, is more likely to kill you and that we need to take all these precautions, that everything could certainly be explained by that because when you have the flu, you're definitely gonna put out these exosomes and so you can have a positive test.
Now, interestingly, psychological stress, including fear, which many, many people around the world are experiencing in a very intense way right now, also causes release of exosomes. So you see how this may uh, cause false positive tests. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Andy Kaufman. Um, I've been uh, talking a lot lately about this uh, viral pandemic, and um, I've learned some things lately that have helped me uh, develop a, a theory, and I think I know what is really going on here, so I want to give that information to everyone. Um, I want everyone to know that I, I am a qualified uh, medical doctor. Um, I'm board certified. I practice in psychiatry and forensic psychiatry. Um, I also do natural healing consultation. Um, in the past, I've worked in hematology and oncology. I've held leadership positions in uh, medical school. I ran a uh, medical device startup company, um, and you can see where I had my education. So I feel that I am uh, qualified to talk about this subject matter, and I hope you'll agree. All right, let's jump right in. So I want to start at the beginning at Ground Zero, Wuhan, China, Hubei Province. This is the seafood market there. It's an open-air market uh, where the first cases occurred. And as you can see from this uh, picture, um, there's a bunch of meat and, and animal carcasses uh, just laid out right on the ground. Um, here's another photograph from the market uh, where you can see that uh, conditions are some, somewhat less than sanitary. You have uh, live animals, you have dead animals, you have uh, cut up body parts and fluids that all seem to be cross-contaminating. So this is uh, definitely uh, not the kind of market where I'd be wanting to buy uh, my food from, but certainly there was a lot of traffic there, uh, a very big market. If uh, what we had is a situation where just about 200 people at first uh, became ill with a mysterious um, pneumonia type illness at this seafood market, and many of the people were uh, actually employed or made their livelihood at the market. So I wanna ask uh, the audience out there if you, uh, learned about this information, what would be your first thought about what most likely might be the problem that caused this mysterious illness? So would it be A, a new genetic disease like cystic fibrosis? Would it be B, a new virus, a new viral illness? Would it be C, autoimmune disease where the body is attacking itself causing the problem? Or would it simply be bad seafood? And I think most of you would agree that the first thought you'd have, given the commonality of the market and the sanitary conditions there, is that bad seafood would be an issue and something certainly to look into. However, the scientists in China did not agree. And in fact, they did not look into this issue at all, as far as I can tell. But instead, they jumped right into the possibility of a virus. So this is a quote from the first paper from the uh, the group there that uh, claims to have identified uh, this uh, new coronavirus. And what they said is, the disease was determined as viral induced pneumonia by clinicians according to clinical symptoms, um, including basically a fever, a low white blood cell count, uh, pulmonary, pulmonary infiltrates just means uh, fluid and congestion in the lungs on a chest x-ray. And the people did not get better after three days of antibiotics. So they, they did think of, of a bacterial infection first and then went right to the virus. And they note that most of the early cases had contact with the seafood market. So it sounds like they, they were primed to blame a virus on this, on this uh, illness right away. So how did they actually um, uh, claim to have proved that a virus call, caused this illness? 
So what they did is they, they took seven, only seven out of, the, out of the almost 200 initial patients who were sick, and they uh, stuck uh, basically a fiber optic camera, like a long tube down their windpipe into their lungs, and then they squirted a bunch of fluid in there um, and mixed it around and it, it collected whatever debris or cells or uh, chemicals were, were in the lungs and then they sucked it back up. And they did take some other body fluids, they did take blood, they took oral swabs and nasal swabs, but, but it's the lung fluid where they really uh, found what they, or think they found what they were looking for. So when they took this lung fluid out, they did not first try to find a virus in there and separate it out and purify it. But the first thing they did was find and separate some kind of genetic material. Quite an interesting strategy. And what they found was some RNA. But I'll tell you that in our bodies, uh, at any given time, there is some free genetic material circulating around our blood and body fluids. And in addition to that, there are genetic material contained in various types of structures. So um, our, there's uh, various types of vesicles, essentially just small little sacs of fluids that sometimes contain genetic material. There's also the normal bacteria that live in our body, including in the lungs, and they have genetic material. So there are quite a number of different sources of genetic material. So when they found this genetic material from the lung fluid, they then uh, determined the sequence of it, which is basically the code of the genetic material. Um, so they determined uh, all of the base pairs and the order of that sequence. And then they rushed to rapidly develop a diagnostic test, which is a, a qualitative PCR, and I'll discuss that a little bit more in a moment. So in other words, before they really proved anything, they already developed a test, okay? So why didn't they purify the virus and how do they know what the source is of that genetic material? So it turns out that I um, was looking in a, a related area and I found this study from last summer. And this study was trying to also develop a, a diagnostic test, but for lung cancer. And essentially they used the same exact procedure. So they got the lung fluid in the same way with that bronchoalveolar lavage and they collected that fluid, and out of that fluid, they isolated genetic material, and they sequenced that and uh, tried to, they called it a possible biomarker, and this could be a test for lung cancer. So I thought it was, uh, it was quite interesting and coincidental that the same exact procedure was developing a diagnostic test for lung cancer as was developing a diagnostic test for this pandemic pneumonia. Now, I'll tell you some important things about this test. So the most important thing is it's not actually testing for the virus itself, it's testing for a sequence of RNA. Now, that sequence of RNA may be present in a virus, but it also may be present in other things. And so I'll give you an example, and I think I mentioned this before, but let's say we had a person that we wanted to identify. Okay, so James, I'm gonna use you this time. So we want to we want to be able to identify James out of a crowd, and we're going to send him to a Yankee Stadium to a baseball game. And but we're not going to use we're not going to look for James's face or any other part of his actual body. Instead, we're going to use uh, a surrogate marker, just like they're using for this test. So we're going to put a a cap on James's head. And now we're not going to use the typical navy blue Yankees hat because there are going to be a million people with that, right? So we got uh, a unique Yankees hat with pinstripes on it. So it's white with blue pinstripes. 
And we're going to have him put that hat on and then go into the stadium and disperse amongst the crowd. And then we have a team of 10 people that we're going to send out into the stadium looking for that hat. Okay, so we do this procedure. And lo and behold, what happens is we actually find six of these hats. Okay, so six out of uh, 10 people find someone wearing this hat. So we go and identify if any of those people are James. And it actually turns out that none of them are James because James doesn't like wearing hats. So once he got in the stadium, he gave his hat to, uh, to some kid who would have liked it. And that was one of the six people that we found. So you see that when you, when you um, are looking for something that's not exactly the thing you're looking for, but it's something that's associated with that thing, you have to really understand the relationship between what you're looking for and that thing. So in other words, we had to ask James, James, will you, will you be comfortable wearing this hat the whole time, right? And then we also have to know, did other people um, buy this hat or is this a one-of-a-kind hat? right? So you can see it can be very misleading. We can get a lot of false results um, by using this type of method. So in order to mitigate that, and by the way, this concept was just drilled into us in medical school, that whenever you're evaluating a new test, that you need to compare it to the gold standard. And that's how you know if it's actually valid. So with this COVID-19 test, there has not been any gold standard test that this has been compared to because the uh, supposed COVID-19 virus has never been purified um, and visualized. So in other words, if we were able to take people who are ill with this um, pandemic pneumonia and take their lung fluid and from that purify out a virus particle that we could identify, and once we purified that, we could actually take the genetic material right from that particle. So we know that it came where it came from. We know it didn't come from anywhere else because now we have a pure sample of only these particles. Then we would be able to have a gold standard. And so the way you would test this PCR is you would have a group of sick patients and then you would have a control group of healthy patients. You would perform the gold standard test so you'd be able to identify the virus out of each of those patients. And then you would compare the results of the PCR test to that gold standard. And that is really critical because it would allow you to, to determine or calculate an error rate because no test is perfect. It's also very, very important that you have that control group because that control group would not have the virus present at all and would also should have a negative PCR test. Um, and that's very important in order to help you calculate these error rates. So one example of a type of error that I think we'd be very concerned about with this test because we don't want to be mislabeled as being positive for this alleged virus and then risk being quarantined or perhaps even detained. So, um, we, so we want to know the accuracy. Now, there was a paper that came out um, where they, they had to estimate the false positive rate because you can't calculate it since there's no gold standard to compare it against. And they actually reported an estimated rate of 80% um, in people without symptoms. So what that means is if you got tested, let's say you were uh, exposed to somebody who tested positive uh, or you traveled or something like that and you want to get tested or you're, you're asked to get tested, there would be four out of five times that there was a positive result, there would actually be no illness. 
So this could be a real, real big problem. It certainly could vastly overestimate the number of cases and also could have a lot of consequences uh, for you based on this quarantine situation. So just to talk generally about what the PCR test, because there's actually additional error even beyond what I've described. So what this test does is it's really just an amplification strategy. And the reason this is necessary is because we're, we're kind of looking for a needle in the haystack. We might only find a few copies of this genetic material. And if there's only a few copies, we just can't detect it out of all of the other stuff that's in the fluid. So, so what this does is it's uh, a reaction that actually um, uh, replicates the strand of RNA uh, and it makes uh, a copy. So it makes from one to two. So you would run a cycle of this reaction and you'd go from say one copy to two copies. Then you would stop the reaction and then start another cycle by adding some more materials and then you go from two to four and repeat it again, four to eight and so on and so on. And this is an exponential or a binomial expansion. And if you look at the uh, black uh, curve on the graph here, you'll see that's what that represents. So um, generally speaking, when you're using this test, you wanna carry out approximately between 25 and 35 cycles in order to get enough amplification that you can see what you're looking for. If you go too much beyond that, what happens is you end up amplifying the noise. So it seems to be generally represented that the absolute maximum number of cycles that you could do and still get an accurate result is 45. And that's exactly the number of cycles that is recommended for this COVID-19 PCR test. So it's right at the upper limit. And I'm gonna share this quote with you uh, from another article about PCR. It says, what PCR does is to select a genetic sequence and then amplify it enormously. It can accomplish the equivalent of finding a needle in a haystack. It can amplify that needle into a haystack. Like an electronically amplified antenna, PCR greatly amplifies the signal, but also greatly amplifies the noise. Since the amplification is exponential, the slightest error in measurement, the slightest contamination, can result in errors of many orders of magnitude. So this is not a very accurate test, especially when you're pushing the number of cycles to get so much amplification. Uh, just a slight mistake can result in false positives. And I think that's, that's what we've been seeing. So I'm going to change gears now a little bit and talk about something different, something that most of you have never heard of whatsoever, and it's called exosomes. And I'm going to talk about what they are and why they're relevant for this discussion. So exosomes are something that is naturally occurring in the body. Um, so I have this diagram here. And if you look at the top right of the diagram, you'll see that this is a normal cell here outlined. And inside the cell, you have these vesicles. And inside of our cells, there are a number of different little organs. They call them organelles. And they're generally contained by a membrane. They come in different shapes but lots of them are in this structure. It's essentially like a spherical blob that has the same membrane as is the outer membrane of the cell, a lipid bilayer membrane, and it can contain various types of chemicals. Now, this is a specific type of uh, vesicle that um, will end up merging with the cell membrane at the surface under certain conditions and release these exosomes 
out into the extracellular fluid and they'll get into the circulation and be distributed around the body. So while they're inside the cell, they're called MVEs, which stands for multivesicular endosomes. So in other words, they have a bunch of exosomes or vesicles inside them. And they, they release these on a regular basis just day to day. And there are many things, though, that can induce this process and accelerate it and increase the number of exosomes that it releases outside of the cell. And so these exosomes uh, leave the cell, and you see they have these little squares on them. And these little squares are like a lock. And what they do is they go around the body through the circulation, and they're looking for the right um, key to fit their lock. And that's called the target cell. And depending on what kind of cell releases them, they might have different keys and different locks, so they're targeted to different parts of the body. And these are, are mostly thought to involve communication. So communication between one cell and another cell, between one part of the body and another part of the body. And they can have many functions in this communication, which I'll, I'll get to momentarily. So here on the left, uh, this is an electron uh, micrograph or a picture from an electron microscope of exosomes. And you can see here an exosome budding out of the cell. And it's essentially a, a spherical or circular. This is a cross section. So this is like a, a slice of the tissue um, where on the, on the periphery, there are like these kind of globular densities or little, little dots or circles, right? And inside the cell here where it says MVP, MVB, sorry, these are the same as MVEs, uh, that's where all these exosomes are when they're inside the cell before they bud out, okay? And now we have a picture on the right, which allegedly shows this COVID-19 virus. And you can see that there are these vesicles budding out of the cell in a circular shape with these globular uh, dots on the periphery. So essentially, it's the same thing. Now, you might think that this looks a little bit fuzzier on the exosomes, and it looks a bit sharper in this picture. And I want to tell you that the reason for that is because when you're cutting these thin sections of tissue to make these slides, you're using this device called a microtome. It's like a vibrating razor blade. And it's technically difficult, and sometimes the tissue doesn't cooperate well, or sometimes the person is less skilled and you might not have a perfect slice. On this COVID-19 slide, this is, uh, I've not seen a better slice than this, it's absolutely perfect. The one on the left is a little bit thicker, and so that's why it looks a bit fuzzier and less sharp, but essentially you're seeing the same exact thing. And I wanna uh, take a look at the same comparison when we see both of them inside of, of the host cell. Okay, so on the bottom left here, this is a COVID-19 cell. And you see right here is supposedly, this is the virus particle inside the cell. And once again, you see a circular shape. And inside you see these round globular um, aggregates. Okay, now look at the top right. And this here is showing you two, uh, this is less magnification. And this is actually a nerve cell. Um, and this is the MVE. So these are a bunch of exosomes inside here, and you see a circular structure filled with these globular um, uh, particles. So once again, same thing, also same size, um, both about 500 nanometers in diameter. Okay, you see the scale lines here, so you can see for yourself. 
So now we have a series of two comparison photographs under electron microscope of the virus and an exosome outside the cell and a virus and an MVE inside the cell. And you can see that they are identical in appearance. So let's look at actually some physical parameters of these and make uh, continue our comparison. So we've kind of, I've mentioned a little bit that they are roughly the same size when they're inside the cell, same size when they're outside the cell. Now there is some variability here. I've looked at lots of these photographs and um, I see in both cases, there is some variability in the size. So these numbers are not precise, but in every case, they are essentially compatible in their range of sizes. Now also the receptor, now this is a key, key thing. Now remember I mentioned that lock and key mechanism. Well, actually with the COVID-19 uh, um, papers, they have discovered that on its surface, it has a receptor for ACE2. Now ACE2 is uh, angiotensin converting enzyme. It's an enzyme in our bodies. One of its functions is that it, it works with the kidney to regulate blood pressure. And there are blood pressure medications that inhibit this enzyme. But in this paper, what they said is that this receptor is actually how the virus invades the cells. Now, I also was able to find a paper where they've identified exosomes coming from our own body that also use the ACE2 receptor as their lock and key mechanism to find their target cells. So exosomes and COVID-19, the same exact receptor on their surface targeting the same exact cells. Now, these both contain genetic material and it's both in the form of RNA. No DNA, only RNA. And these structures are both found in the lung fluid. So the lung cancer test that I showed you earlier found exosomes in that fluid. And uh, the lung fluid showed the COVID-19 as well. So you can see that the more we, we take out this comparison forward, we see that they're essentially the same in every important way. So I happen to... Um, uh, be looking in the virology literature, and actually they also think exosomes and viruses are uh, possibly the same thing. So this is James, Dr. James Hildreth, a very prominent uh, researcher and academic physician in the field of virology and HIV research. He's currently the president and CEO of Mahari Medical College, but he was a full professor at Johns Hopkins, and he wrote this paper with two of his colleagues there. And what he said, and I quote, the virus is fully an exosome in every sense of the word. Now, this was just a great confirmation for what I was already thinking, and I was kind of blown away when I read this in the paper because uh, this was one of the last papers I looked at um, to find this after I'd already come to the same conclusion. It really helped validate my opinion. So what is it that causes us to make more of these exosomes and throw them out into our circulation? So it turns out that almost every type of insult to the body would, would actually cause this, pro this process to occur. So toxic substances, and I found several papers looking at this. Some of them looked at um, environmental toxins, uh, such as heavy metals like arsenic, um, and organic uh, chemical toxins. Uh, also found uh, evidence about bacterial toxins, and I have a slide that I'll show you in a minute. 
So there's clearly has a role in um, e-communication or possibly removal of toxic substances that damage our cells. Now, interestingly, psychological stress, including fear, which many, many people around the world are experiencing in a very intense way right now, also causes release of exosomes. So you see how this may uh, cause false positive tests. Cancer, as I mentioned before, um, lung cancer uh, uh, has many exosomes. Um, ionizing radiation, infection, injury. In fact, any type of immune response, so whether it be to injury, infection, or another disease. Um, asthma. Now, many papers just said that exosomes are in, in, induced by disease, and they didn't mention anything specific, and they seem to be implying that virtually any type of disease can cause this process. Now, I really wanted to find evidence that EMF would induce exosomes, but unfortunately, I could not find a paper on this. But I want to say to all of the people in this field of research on exosomes that this would be an excellent contribution to the literature if you were to look at this issue, if various, especially microwave radiation like 5G, would cause this as well. So I want to talk about the second paper because this is gonna help us merge these two ideas of a virus and an exosome and are they the same thing. So this is uh, also from the group in China. Um, this one is published in the New England Journal of Medicine and they had a slightly different uh, protocol, but essentially it was very similar. So what they did is once again, they, they did that procedure to get the lung fluid um, and then they centrifuged it and just took the fluid, so any cells, um, from the host, uh, like any lung cells that might be in there or bacterial cells would, would be stuck in a pellet in the bottom of the test tube. And they just took the fluid off the top, assuming that if there were viral particles, they'd be in that fluid. But they didn't actually then try to purify the virus out of that fluid. Instead, they mixed it with, with cells that they took from a, uh, a person who had lung cancer surgery and they incubated it with the lung cancer cells. Now you remember, I said earlier, and I showed experimental evidence that lung cancer cells make exosomes. So when they then purified particles after incubating this fluid with the lung cancer cells and then examined them under the microscope, well, were they looking at viral particles or were they looking at exosomes? And I have two images below, and one is supposedly the viral particle from this paper, and the other is an exosome. Can you tell the difference? Here is um, another uh, slide showing the functions of exosomes as they can remove toxins. So in the upper right here, these uh, green cells are actually bacteria. And by the way, this image, all electron micrograph images are always in black and white. If you see an image like this, this has been colorized after the fact, and they did that to help you identify what is what. So I, I think this is actually quite a nice approach, and this is a real slide. It's very different from some of the slides that, that you've seen that are just computer graphics that are made by an artist. So these particles that they colored purple are uh, the toxins uh, released by the bacteria, and uh, they, if they were allowed to contact the cell membrane, they would actually bore little holes in there and the cell's contents would leak out and it would die. 
Um, so what's happening is that the cell put out these yellow exosomes once it, once it realized these toxins were there. And you see they're all budding out of the central area of the cell. And you can see they're basically swallowing up the little toxin particles. And so in this experiment, what they actually did is that they found that when they mixed cells with the bacteria, if the cells put out the exosomes that ate up the toxins, then the cell survived. If the cells were mixed with the bacteria and they did not put out the exosomes, then the cells died. So this was done you know, in a Petri dish, not in a person, but so we can't say for sure, but but what this is really telling us is that these exosomes help us clear these toxins so that they don't damage our tissue. So a very important function. I also wanted to take a quick look because there have been some recent reports that people who have been ill are having rapid recoveries with a couple of uh, non-traditional treatments. Like these are not things that uh, would typically be thought of by the medical establishment to use for a quote-unquote viral uh, illness. But there are certainly uh, reports, there was a doctor in New York City who claimed that he cured several hundred patients with hydroxychloroquine. I think he combined it with zinc. Now, hydroxychloroquine was originally a drug for malaria, um, but it's used in, in the United States uh, primarily for diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And it is not known how it works uh, in those illnesses. And, in my experience, it doesn't really work at all in those illnesses. However, there has been a bunch of research trying to figure out what this drug does. And I, I read a review paper on this and I found uh, quite an interesting thing. So there are studies that show that this drug can release lysosomal enzymes. So I'll tell you that the lysosome is the basically the garbage dump of the cell. So it's another one of these vesicles or sacs and it has all these enzymes that basically just chew everything up, you know, similar to what happens in your gut when you're digesting food. And any trash that is not working anymore, right, like proteins that have degraded or DNA that was copied in error or things like that, they get sent to the lysosome for destruction and recycling. So it breaks it down into the basic constituents and then is able to send it back to uh, the factory part of the cell where it could be reused to make new molecules. But in the case of this drug, what it actually does is release these enzymes out of the compartment in the cell and into the cell cytoplasm. And this can actually be quite damaging to the cell itself. However, if the cell has been inundated with some kind of toxic substance, these enzymes could help break that down so that the cell could survive. So I, I think that may be actually how it's helping uh, these patients. Now, vitamin C is the, the other one that has been reported to be quite successful. And a lot of people think that vitamin C really works by, you know, quote unquote, boosting the immune system. Now, it does have an effect on some of the immune regulatory function, but I do not feel that that's really how it helps in these conditions. In my opinion, it is the antioxidant properties of this drug um, and possibly the blood thinning qual qualities that is what really helps this illness. So when you have a, a toxic exposure, oftentimes that toxin will cause what's known as oxidative stress or free radicals. And we're all familiar with 
you know, that it's recommended to take antioxidants and, you know, eat special kinds of berries and things like that. But nobody really, not too many people understand what that's really doing. But what it, what it does is it kind of acts like a neutralizing sponge for these free radicals. It just soaks them up and quelches them. And what the free radicals do is they have like a chain reaction. It's like they tag someone and make them a free radical and tag the next person and make it a free radical. And then all these molecules end up falling apart and making a huge mess and the cells can't function. So the vitamin C stops that process dead in its tracks and reduces that damage um, and prevents further damage. And in my opinion, that's how it works for this type of acute illness. All right. So I'm going to tie this all together everything I've told you tonight into what I think is really going on here. So what I think is happening is that, first of all, as I've reported quite a bit, there are really not pandemic levels of people getting sick and dying from whatever's going on. The numbers are far less than a typical flu season. However, there clearly are some people who are getting sick. What I believe is causing this illness is that there is some kind of insult that occurs that causes the damage, and then there is a reaction to it, which is the production of exosomes. And when we are testing for this supposed virus, we are actually testing for these exosomes, which confirms that there's some kind of unhealthy process going on in the body. Now, I talked about the things that can cause production of the exosomes, and I believe that those represent the cause of the illness. And I think that the possibilities are that there is some kind of poison. Certainly, there's lots of precedent for a pneumonia-type illness coming from inhalation of toxic substances. There uh, could be the stress and fear could be the cause. It could represent a regular flu or pneumonia, or even a bad cold, and whatever causes those would be the same cause. And, and lastly, electromagnetic radiation could certainly be a cause as well. There has been a major proliferation and installation of new 5G infrastructure, and there's certainly evidence known that 5G can have adverse effects on one's health, including damaging DNA. And that, that evidence actually comes from Los Alamos National Laboratories when they've studied um, microwave and uh, radiation like they use in the body scanners in the airport. And I think it's quite possible that there is not one toxic exposure, but there could be different causes of this illness in different areas or perhaps even in the same area between different people that this may not be a uniform um, cause of the illness but it does cause a similar constellation of upper respiratory symptoms and these symptoms are not extremely specific all of these illnesses there are i could list off probably 20 different illnesses that would cause a cough possible shortness of breath a, a fever and suppress your white count. Um, so there could be several different causes of this, but I do not see any conclusive evidence whatsoever that there is any virus. And certainly you could see that the exosome and the virus are essentially indistinguishable from each other. So let me just reiterate that. So there is some sort of insult or toxin that you're exposed to, it causes illness, and then 
that stimulates your own cells to induce and produce and put out these exosomes because they will send the important signal to your body on how to handle this problem. And part of that is they will actually eat up and like a sponge soak up these toxins so that they can be safely removed from your body so that you can recover. So what I'm saying is that COVID-19 actually are exosomes and not a virus that invades your body from the outside. It comes from within your body to help you and it's a reaction to the real cause of illness. And that's where I'm going to end it right now um, and take questions. And I just want everyone to know that I have a comprehensive list of references uh, for this talk. And um, this will certainly be uh, published um, with us. And I will distribute this uh, slide presentation uh, to uh, all of my collaborators. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Andy. Is it accurate? I'd like to start with the first question, if that's okay. Is it accurate to say that the day before the Wuhan breakout took place, the day before anyone knew anything was wrong, if you were to send a team into that place, that we would find exosomes inside of every single human there uh, at that location? Absolutely. And if we were to do that to the most healthy city in the world, that we could find if we were to go into that place and go into the clean mall <laughs> where everyone washes their hands would we find exosomes inside of the bodies of all of those people too or uh, you know a majority of them let's say yeah well so um you if you looked hard enough you would find exosomes in every every single human being but um in order to uh make it easier to find you would you would have to have a certain level that would be a little bit easier to detect okay because remember i talked about that amplification process and so it, if something is really at a super low level it's harder to amplify so but the thing is that you don't have to actually be acutely ill to have an excess of exosomes because let's say that you um you're a pretty healthy person but you decide that you want to treat yourself and you go to a fast food restaurant and there's a bunch of chemicals and toxins in that fast food restaurant. Well, that is gonna cause induction of exosome relief, release. Okay, so, so just because of that, you're gonna now have a higher number even though you're not acutely ill, and it'd be more likely to be able to be detected on a test. And I would say also, if you had some strong emotional uh, things going on, you may not be physically ill, but you may be in a crisis, you may be experiencing grief or anxiety, or as people are now, fear. And that will also cause an increase in exosomes and it'd be much more likely to be detected on a certain type of test. Fantastic. To follow up on that, if I can, um, you mentioned the RNA, and as a layman, I'm purposely asking this so you'll correct me, um, <clears throat> you know, for whatever I'm wrong on. Uh, the, the cell is copying DNA. To copy it, it makes RNA. And during that copying procedure, it's much like an MP3 file in the sense that it's, it's copying as fast as it can. And there's going to be errors that, that crop up during that copying process, and that those errors could easily trigger... Um, maybe, I don't know if it's easily, but those errors could then trigger that same blue and white striped ball cap. Say it could be found on the awning over the bathroom or on a lady's purse. She could be having a blue and white striped purse, for example. Is that accurate or am I off there? 
Yeah, no, no. Um, uh, you, you're, you're very on the money um, with looking at this. And uh, there, there are several um, uh, things to consider about that. Uh, would you mind uh, just repeating that question again? Because I just lost my train of thought. Just the beginning uh, part. Uh, the beginning part mainly was during the, the cell is copying DNA. Yes, I, I remember now it's about the errors. Yeah. So what I wanted to say was that, um, so we all know about DNA, right? Everybody, even if you don't know how biology works, you, you know that we have DNA and you know that we have genes and it codes some kind of blueprint for how our body is supposed to work, right? So the DNA is mostly just to like store the code. And, but when we actually express the genes, what happens is that the DNA, it's called transcription, it gets transcribed and forms RNA. And RNA is a bit easier to work with for certain functions because it's in, generally in a single strand. So if you were to, when you work with the DNA, when, even when the DNA makes the RNA, like part of it has to separate from the two strands that are in a helix, open it up so that the enzymes can attach to it to make the RNA. Uh, but once you have the RNA, it's much easier because it's just a single strand, so it can then uh, go on, and what happens is it, it actually codes proteins and makes proteins. Um, whenever you have either replication of DNA, like DNA making more DNA, like when cells divide, or when you have DNA making RNA, there's always errors that are going to occur. So these errors are just a normal process because think about it, you know, we're human, we make mistakes, right? We can't ever stop making mistakes, we're always gonna make them. And the cells are the same way and the chemistry is the same way because we're talking about the, in our DNA in a human, there are three billion base pairs. So in other words, the code is three billion symbols long. Okay, so that's a lot of mileage. So of course there are gonna be errors in there. And in fact, we have a whole set of machinery in our cells to help catch those errors and correct those errors so that they don't perpetuate and cause us disease and dysfunction. And also when we're exposed to stress or toxic material or radiation, it can increase the error rate because those things can affect the chemistry of the replication and they affect the structure of the water. I mean, water is a really important aspect of this because um, the, like the DNA itself, for example, when the water is structured, there's a column of DNA uh, of water that runs inside the helix and is critical for it functioning proper in a chemical way. So if we have some kind of toxin or stress or radiation that disrupts the structure of the water, it can actually perpetuate more errors when there's replication and transcription to make RNA. So that's a really good point. Now, the other point I wanna mention is also uh, related to uh, the test being wrong. So when they do this PCR test, they're actually using a probe, which is only a short stretch of the sequence they're looking for that will attach to the the genetic material that you wanna find and basically be like the, the start of adding more bases on and, and duplicating the sequence exactly. And that probe, so basically the probe is the only thing that will match up with what you're looking for. And the, some of the probes used in the COVID-19 are only like 20 to 26 base pairs long. So if you think about it, if we have a stretch of 3 billion base pairs, right? I think that Somewhere in there, you're going to find every single combination of 26 base pairs. 
So, so you're, you're going to, I mean, it's an impossible not to be there. So it would be easy to say that you think this sequence is specific to some virus that you think you found, but it could very well easily, just as easily be a piece of our own DNA that has the same exact sequence. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy is what it sounds like to me. Yes, that's certainly one way to look at it. So my first question is when you say the 45 cycles um, is the sort of upper limit that's going to start to give you results that aren't necessarily indicative of anything, um, does that add to the 80% likelihood of false positives or is that part of the 80% false positives? Right. Well, I don't think that the team that did that estimation really took into account the method of the PCR when they did that rate. What they were trying to look at is uh, people that tested positive, they could follow them out and see if they got sick. Um, but so I look at it as a separate source of error. Now, certainly it, it would, if you're measuring, if you could accurately measure the error rate, if you had a gold standard comparison, it would be reflected in whatever error rate you calculated, right? But since we only have an estimate and it didn't account for it directly, it could be considered as an additional source of error. But, it, but it's really, really difficult to know what the magnitude of that is because we have no comparison. And then we also have a situation where there are different protocols that are run in different laboratories in different countries. So I found uh, a protocol from the World Health Organization that is described 45 cycles. But that doesn't mean that if you go to Taiwan or if you go to Sweden or if you go to Mexico, that they're doing it exactly the same way. It's the same thing with the probes. They, they list, I think, seven different probes that you can use. And so you have some choices there um, as to how you go, and it's just gonna be like heterogeneous. And I think a really good example of comparison is the HIV test, which is also um, quite problematic and has many, many, uh, over 50 conditions that cause a false positive, including pregnancy. And so they've done a test where they have one person um, who has already been documented to let you know be HIV positive, and they take their their samples and send it out to like ten different laboratories, and see do those results agree? And what they find is that they do not agree. That they are sometimes negative, sometimes positive, and they've even done this where they've repeated it over time. So they have that person do it one time, then six months later, say, they take samples and send it out again. And even within the lab with the same sample, the result is not consistent over time. So in other words, uh, you take my blood and test it now, and it's negative, and that, or it's positive, and then test it in six months, it's negative. The same blood sample, same person right? And I didn't do anything different. Mm -hmm. so, so it's impossible to tell right now how much of this error is going on uh, because there's so much panic and urgency to everything. Um, and, and, you know, there's certain things like it's really hard to find information about this test, actually. Okay. Thank you. And the, there's a couple of the pictures of the exosomes and the you know, virus and um, the size, the scale is different. Are they, but that you were saying they are actually the same size. It's just the scale is reported in different units, I guess. Yes, that's okay. it. So there was one where there's, uh, it's reported in one is nanometer, 500 nanometers, and the other one it's five micrometers. 
Okay. Uh, those are actually the, it's the same exact uh, length. Yeah, they, they try to make it as confusing as possible by not using standards. <laughs> so uh, I, was, uh, I had a, a scientific calculator that I was uh, using quite a bit in to prepare this lecture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I don't know those units. So that's good to know. And then um, what about, what would you say to people who are saying then this seems transmissible? Are exosomes transmissible? Or is this, you know, how, how would that be happening if it's not sort of our traditional understanding of a virus? Right. Well, um, I don't think this is really known. So certainly there are exosomes in our body fluids, right? And if they're in the lung fluid, then when you cough, they're coming out of your body, right? So, um, so there, you know, there is some possibility of this. However, think about the function of the exosomes. The exosomes are, uh, provide a helpful function. They signal to other parts of your body um, that there's danger and how to deal with it right? Or they, they actually even eat up those toxins. Mm -hmm. So if they were transmitted uh, between people, it could actually per, uh, perform a, um, uh, a symbiotic type of function, a, a beneficial function that it could help prepare other people uh, that you might face the same toxic exposure. So you should prepare yourself for that. Now, that, that has not been, there's no studies that I found that show that. So this is purely my um, reasoning uh, based on what I do know, I can't say for sure. But I do wanna say one other thing um, about that, that given the size of these particles, that they are so tiny, there's really no way that you can prevent them from getting out or getting in, right? So, you know, the, if you look at the pores of the masks people are wearing, they're way bigger than the size of these particles. Yeah. So they're essentially just going to go right through. <laughs> so, yeah, because I just was watching something where um, the professor was describing it as like if you, you know, saw a group of dolphins getting sick and would you go just pick one dolphin and start cutting it up and looking for things? Or would you say like, wow, there's probably something in the water. Let's test the water and find out what's in the water. And so that's kind of similar to this is maybe it's not transmitting maybe there's a whole section of our world that's got a certain toxin and we're responding to it accordingly but last question wasn't 5g um deployed in wuhan just before all of this started affecting people yes i, I believe it was okay. and um you know i i know that there is a lot of speculation and, and a lot of people actually with very strong opinions that feeling that uh, 5G is the principal insult uh, that has caused people to be sick. Now, I, I don't want to say, like, I, I think that this is a real possibility, and certainly there is a lot of correlations like that, that there's an installation and then there's an illness, and I think in Italy you can also find a similar pattern. But, I, you know, I think it's important to know that uh, correlation does not prove causation, Right. And that there's really not quite enough evidence right now to say that with any uh, conclusive um, uh, opinion right. on it. But I, I definitely think that it, it merits a lot more investigation. And, uh, you know, I am very concerned about this deployment of 5G, that even if it's not the cause of this problem, it's going to be the cause of a lot of problems in the future. Correct me if I'm wrong, sorry to jump ahead here, but... but this is a proof that your immune system is doing its job, right? Like if, like if you test positive for exosomes, that's like, yeah. your system is working. I, I, am I wrong about that? 
Well, it, I don't think it proves that your immune system is working, but it definitely proves that your body is reacting to something and trying to, uh, trying to function to uh, heal from whatever that insult is. And interestingly, there have been, so remember I talked about that lock and key mechanism. So there have been other studies of exosomes showing that they have the lock uh, for certain immune cells. And they are strongly felt to actually pay, play a role in helping the immune system um, fix some of these problems. Um, so, so that's a, an excellent point, James. So it sounds like that you've isolated what it is not, but do we have an idea what it is and what they're supposedly uh, these people are experiencing? You, you mean what is the real cause of the illness? Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, really, really difficult to say because there aren't really any scientists uh, doing any uh, research experiments looking for another cause. Um, I will point out some, some interesting things that I heard uh, in addition to the 5G hypothesis, but from Dr. Cowan, who, uh, Lindsay, by the way, he's the one that uh, made that dolf uh, dolphin um, analogy. Oh, yeah, cool. And, um, and he, he was really helped me think about this uh, in, in this big picture way. But, um, so he mentioned that there was a, a community, and I, I want to—I think this might be in Northern Africa, but I, I could definitely be wrong. It was definitely in a developing country where they had just recently um, uh, made uh, people use um, biodiesel for all of the vehicles, or they rolled out a, a, a big fleet of vehicles using biodiesel. And so he was reasoning that probably, you know, this is like uh, from. Uh, corn or other GMO crops making this diesel so that when these vehicles are using this fuel, they're actually putting out tons of glyphosate into the air. And then uh, people would be inhaling this uh, possibly, and then that, that could be a cause in that area of a respiratory illness. So it's quite possible that it could be multiple different causes in different places, and which also would help account for a slightly different um, constellation of symptoms that might be segregated in certain uh, areas uh, geographically. So is this really nothing beyond a flu per se? Like the things that we're seeing, is this just a, a flu and they're saying it's this other thing? They're just taking all of the flu things that are going on all over the world and saying, oh, it's this one terrible thing and, and we have to stop it. Right, well, that is certainly a possibility. And uh, you know that has been my main working hypothesis so far, because if you look at the number of cases and the number of mortality uh, of fatalities, you'd see that it, uh, it doesn't even really rise to the level of the flu. So if they took the, no, the real number of flu cases for this year, and decided to designate a certain portion of those uh, people to test positive and say that when they're having the flu, it's actually this other really scary virus um, that uh, is more likely to kill you and that we need to take all these precautions. That everything could certainly be explained by that because when you have the flu, you're definitely gonna put out these exosomes and so you can have a positive test. So if you are indeed in quarantine, Here's the song All By Myself from 1962, sung by Bobby Darin. But hey, I don't imply that you are alone all by yourself in quarantine. Rather, you are always alone. That is why you need to understand that only you 
can do something. Stop leaning on others. Get your act together. Resist the parental nature of society and humanity. Stand on your own feet. Think for yourself and act when necessary. Don't believe it because I said it. Have a look for yourself. I know I said in the last episode that the next episode was going to be about benzodiazepine. But shit happened and this one you just heard was a special report, as I mentioned. Which means that unless the dead rise, in the next episode we will be finally looking at benzodiazepine. So see you then. Freedom is in the mind. All by myself in the night I sit alone with a table and a chair So unhappy there Playing solitaire All by myself I get lonely Watching the clock on the shelf I'd love to rest my weary head on somebody's shoulder I hate to grow older All by myself All by myself in the morning In the night I sit alone With a table and a chair So unhappy there Playing solitaire Cause I'm all by myself And I get lonely Watching the clock On the shelf I'd love to rest my weary head On somebody's shoulder I hate to grow older All by myself All by myself In the morning All by myself I'd love to rest my weary head on somebody's shoulder I hate to grow